Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. So the 2020 election is in the history books. On Thursday, November 5th, two days after the polls closed, we hosted the first ever live episode of Sorry Not Sorry to put it in perspective. Our guests had such great information and so many smart things to say that I know you'll forgive the slightly less than perfect audio that comes from a live streamed event. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry's live election roundup special. Thank you so much for being here. We are recording this on Thursday, November 5th, about 48 hours after the polls closed. And while we still don't have an official winner, it looks likely Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. It is clear that Biden has a significant popular vote margin and is currently about 4 million votes ahead of Donald Trump. But despite that big win, the Electoral College is not settled. Disunity reigns in our country with a huge divide between Trump supporters and Biden supporters over the fundamental questions of what it means to be American. But the issues in this election go far wider than the presidency. Control of the Senate still hangs in the balance. And if Georgia goes to two runoffs, it won't be decided until January. The coronavirus just reached its highest daily rate of new infections since the pandemic started. And the fate of the Affordable Care Act will be decided by the Supreme Court. More than 100,000 Americans are victims of gun violence each year, and 40,000 of them die. And we can't find the families of more than 500 immigrant children that we separated at the border. It's a lot. The country is going through a lot. And to help us make sense of it all, I've invited an incredible group of experts here tonight. First, to get us started, I'd like to welcome our panel uh, E.J. Dion of The Washington Post is senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and the author of Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. And Jesse Wegman is a member of the New York Times editorial board and the author of Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. EJ and Jesse, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us on our first ever live recording with a virtual studio audience of Sorry Not Sorry. I appreciate you being here with me. Thank you. Well, EJ, let's start with you. Can you give us your overall impression of how this election played out? Was it what you expected? Well, I guess I'm like a lot of people who had hopes that the that the margin would be bigger, that fewer people would vote for Trump, that maybe some more some more Senate seats uh, might flip than actually flipped. And the one other on the negative side, I did not expect those House losses that we're seeing out there for the Democrats. 
Um, I thought they'd hold what they had or maybe gain some seats. Um, having said that, I think it's a mistake, given that Joe Biden is on the world, on the verge of winning by what will be a popular vote margin of easily six or seven million votes um, and with a good chance of getting over 300 electoral votes. That's a significant repudiation of Donald Trump. And it happened because uh, lots of people will mobilize uh, among uh, African-Americans. And despite some fall off in South Florida among Latinos, middle class suburbanites, and also Joe Biden won back some of the white non-college, white working class votes right across mm -hmm. the Midwest. This is a really significant victory, um, if I may call it, before the networks and my newspaper have. Uh, and I think we should really celebrate that fact. And I think in Biden ran what I think is one of the most disciplined campaigns I have seen in my lifetime. And it's not just uh, somebody like me who believes that I have sympathy for Biden. A lot of Republicans I know were, pra and not just the anti-Trumpers, we're praising this campaign, no leaks, uh, no public backbiting, and a really clear message that started in one place and ended in the same place. You just don't see that very often. Well, and Trump is sending out this message that the election was somehow rigged, um, which, you know, is obviously so dangerous because there is no proof of that. But also, if it were, wouldn't we have taken the Senate and not lost so many houses and uh, seats in the House? Uh, that is a wonderful point. It's a, if they rigged it, they were really incompetent riggers. Yeah. Uh, because some of those Senate races are pretty close, so it wouldn't have taken that much rigging. That's exactly right. I mean, I don't know anybody who saw Trump tonight. Um, I think there might be a few million people who would want to change their votes. That was just a dreadful, scary display. Uh, and also very dangerous. I mean, I very much worry that Trump is trying to sort of poison the ground before uh, Biden takes over. Um, the, you know, just absolutely false claims. It, you know, I have disliked a lot of things Trump has said over the last four years. This was truly one of the worst displays of the entire four years. Yeah, and I want to try to focus on all of the great things that happened in this election. First of all, the youth vote was the largest turnout in, in the history. Um, also, you, we're on the precipice of electing a woman into the White House in the position of vice president. And that entire story, which is making history, has gotten lost in this this narrative of counting counting the votes and and I want us all to just take a moment and really appreciate that and really think about how incredibly special that is and how incredibly special Kamala Harris is and please let's not lose sight of that. Um Jesse Joe Biden as of right now has about a 4 million vote nationally and and it looks like it's going to be on track to have, you know, a majority of the popular vote. But we're still talking about a handful of states deciding who will win the presidency. Is is our electoral system working? <laughs> uh, no, 
Um, you know, look, I, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me. And also, I'm really glad that you just made the point about all that has been won. Uh, I, I, like EJ, will um, take the liberty of, of going beyond where my newspaper is willing to go and uh, assume that uh, Joe Biden is going to win uh, with at least one, if not all four of the outstanding states. Uh, and, and it is, it's a thrilling thing, uh, putting just to the side for the moment the disappointments of Tuesday night. Um, it, it is amazing. We've, you know, we, we will have the first woman, uh, the first black woman in uh, office in the in the White House in uh, in ever, and uh, and we will, you know, Joe Biden is going to be very likely a majority popular vote winning president. I'm really glad you brought that up too. That's a really important uh, number. You know, we've actually had quite a few presidents who have not won a majority of the popular vote. That's okay. Uh, I think it's been 15 of 45 presidents. So one in three have not won the pop, uh, I'm sorry, have not won uh, a majority of the popular vote. So we, we live with that. But it's really an important symbolic marker of legitimacy and of consensus when a majority of voters in the country in the biggest turnout election in, I think it's a, a roughly a century now in terms of uh, the uh, rate of turnout, uh, when a majority of that uh, turnout goes for one candidate, that's a really important marker. Um, you know, the reason that we're sitting here still to 48 hours later, uh, gnashing our teeth and biting our fingernails is because of the Electoral College. And it's because of this crazy system that we have where uh, states, uh, you know, have winner-take-all rules in which they decide uh, to give all of their electors to the winner of the statewide vote, no matter how close or, or far apart it is. So most states are, are now done, right? We know where, who, who, who got those electoral votes. Those are the safe states. And it's the battleground states that we're waiting for. Um, specifically, I think we're now with Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and, um, and Nevada, though Nevada is... Uh, is, is Nevada been called yet? I, I know they were about. No, but no, I no. think it'll I think it'll go Biden, but they still are counting. Yeah. That last I, a few hours ago, I, they were it seemed like there was just no path for him anymore. Unlike I think in Ar both Arizona and Georgia, I think are uh, a little more up in the air. But, you know, I, I, I would like to put a different framing on this whole thing, which is, you know, we have this constant debate over electoral college versus national popular vote, electoral college versus national popular vote. We're constantly hearing people fighting over which is better. And I just want to kind of interrupt that fight and say we already have a national popular vote for president. Americans in all 50 states go to the polls and they vote for the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States. The thing that keeps us from measuring that vote in that way are these state winner-take-all laws. And those are the laws that erase the political minority in every state in the country and essentially make them invisible in the vote for the president. So it looks like we're this weird pileup of red and blue states. You know, you, you know, California, a blue state. You know, even though four and a half million people voted for Donald Trump in 2016 in California, I, I'm sure the number is going to be even higher this year. All those people disappear with, you know, poof, when the electoral vote happens. Same thing for Democrats in Texas. And you do this all over the country. Tens of millions, probably close, more than 100 million people this year are going to suffer that fate. And that is a terrible thing for a representative democracy, because what it means is the vast majority of people do not matter to the candidates and they do not matter to the president because their votes are not. Uh, valuable to enough to win or, you know, their votes are, are, are assumed. So it doesn't matter, you know, what they want, what they care about, what they're concerned about. And that to me is the, is the deepest problem with our electoral system right now on the federal level. So 
Uh, I, I mean, you know, I've been arguing about this now for a long time, and I and I and I hope that uh, even though it looks like the candidate who wins the popular vote is also going to be the candidate who wins the electoral college. The problems that are caused by the electoral college winner take all rules will still exist. Battleground states still exist. And and that and that problem where they get all the attention is still going to be there. And that's why we need to reform the system. Could I well, plug to- Jesse's book for just a second? I just want to draw a big underline on everything he said. Uh, we should not be sitting here at all still waiting for a few states when we know that the winner, a majority winner of the popular vote is Joe Biden. And it's crazy that we're going through all of this. And it wouldn't take a big shift in a few states to have the an election where for the third time since 2000, uh, the uh, loser of the popular vote would become president. Just one other point that's worth thinking about. With this election, there has only been one election since 1992 when Republicans have won a plurality of the popular vote. Um, it's really astounding. Only Bush in 2004, who actually won a majority. That's mm. it. Every other time a Republican has won, it was with um, uh, uh, not only a minority of the vote, but as a second place candidate. And by the way, EJ, that year in 2004, when George W. Bush won a majority of the popular vote and won three million more votes than John Kerry, a flip of 60,000 votes in Ohio that year and John Kerry would have been the president. So the problem is never far from the surface. Yeah. Well, to to follow up on the way states vote, EJ, we have 20 or so states, right, that always vote for a Democrat no matter what. And 20 or so states that seem to always vote for a Republican no matter what. And a handful of states in the middle. Right. And your book talks about healing divisions among moderates and progressives. But I wonder if you have a prescription for mending divisions between the left and the right. I mean, how do we come back together? Can we come back together? Well, I think that that's on the negative side of this election, where you saw some of these gaps get bigger in a certain way. And with the the very big turnout for Donald Trump, um, I guess where my hope lies is in a pursuit of practical projects that we have in common. I think that when Biden talks about infrastructure, he's talking, which is building stuff. Building stuff is something people on the left and the right can agree on. Even building green stuff uh, to uh, deal with climate change. I think when a candidate talks about childcare and the struggles that families face, I think there's a lot of language around family that is used to divide us, um, you know, on LGBTQ questions, for example. Mm -hmm. When all of us live in families, all of us care about our kids and people of every ideology worries, how are my kids going to be taken care of? How can I take care of my kids? I think there were a lot of issues. Religion is another subject where I was really glad that Biden was out there as a religious person saying to people that he's progressive, uh, he cares about a lot of progressive issues. This doesn't mean that he doesn't respect religious people. So I think there are ways all of us can approach uh, the so-called other side and say, wait a minute, there are things we have in common. Now, I'm not Pollyanna about this. I think the divisions in the nation are very deep. There are people who want to deepen them. 
But I am hoping that we go from a president whose whole political strategy was based on division to a president whose own political strategy and his hope for success rests on unity. And that's got to make some difference in the way the country starts thinking about itself. I really hope so. Well, and I think that one of the things that we see that divides us, even if it's subconscious or we don't have it in the front of our minds, is the fact that not all votes are equal. You know, a vote in North Dakota, which is largely white voters, is much more powerful in the Electoral College than a vote in Atlanta, which is largely made up of black voters. It perpetuates this power dynamic, I feel, in America that is really, really uncomfortable. Um, and so unhealthy. the vote in California is worth less than anywhere when you <laughs> right. consider you know, when you stack it up, California versus Wyoming and and California is one of the most diverse states in the union. Uh, and just before we go to the to uh, Q&A for each of you, what are your predictions for the next, say, 75 days or so between now and inauguration? Uh, EJ, why don't you go first? Oh, I was hoping Jesse would go first on that. <laughs> okay, Jesse, you go first. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Jesse. I think we've all been dreading this. Um, you know, Ron Suskind had that very uh, bracing piece uh, in the Sunday Times uh, last week, and um, I think it was a very good reminder that we uh, this is this is what the framers tried to warn us about. You know, like this is this is you know, ironically, one of the reasons that they adopted an electoral college was to keep somebody like this from getting the reins of power. They obviously didn't know about nuclear weapons, but now we have a man in office who uh, has, you know, unchecked authority to launch uh, nuclear weapons within four minutes. Uh, You know, I I think there is a lot to be concerned about. Uh, I do not think it's hysterical uh, or, you know, fear mongering to wonder what a man who cares about nothing but his own ego uh, will might do uh, as he kind of faces um, the, the one of the biggest and most public losses of his life, uh, you know, and by the way, this is a man who's been losing his whole life and, you know, sort of magically turning it into winning. Uh, but this is one that he just can't spin. This is one he can't sort of sneak his way out of or lawyer his way out of. He's trying, but it's, it's going to end soon. And then you're right. There's going to be 70 something days until uh, Joe Biden uh, officially takes the reins. And I, I think I think that however vigilant Americans have been for the last four years, and uh, <clears throat> I think we're going to need to be a lot more vigilant in the next 75 days. And I think uh, top figures in the government and especially in uh, the State Department, the Defense Department, you know, uh, you know, even up to the cabinet level are, are going to need to be watching this man and they're going to need to be um uh, concerned uh, about what he might do. So I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be like a, uh, an alarmist, but I, I think we, we have seen time and again for the last four years that Donald Trump will, will pretty much do anything to save himself. And, uh, and even if that means destroying everybody else around him. So I, I am, I am concerned. We need to listen to him when he tells us things because he's always projecting what his next move is. So we need to believe him when he, when he, says ridiculous things. Um, and then that's why tonight. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that's why tonight is so scary, because he's really signaling a full scale war, at least for a while. And I worry that the virus is going to get worse in the coming months. And at a very moment when you would want a, the old president cooperating with a new president on an approach to try to 
help the country, you may have total chaos. Um, I, I worry about executive orders he's going to issue, which can be overturned, but can create a lot of trouble. I worry about firings that he might uh, initiate. I worry about last minute appointments he might try to get through. And I worry that there just won't be the cooperation you actually need to move from one government to the other. I mean, I disagree with George W. Bush on all kinds of stuff, uh, but he, um, he arranged a decent transition with uh, Barack Obama in 2008. And I don't think we're going to see any. And then Obama arranged a good transition with Donald Trump, for goodness sake. Yeah. And I, I don't think we're going to see anything like that. And that's very unfortunate. I hope I hope somehow he figures out that it will actually serve his interests to mm-hmm. do this differently. But nothing we've seen so far gives us any confidence. You know, that that letter that Bush left for Obama is making the rounds right now and uh, on the Internet. And it was such a beautiful letter. And, and one of the last things he said was, when I leave this office, you will be our president. And I just can't imagine Trump ever, ever doing something so gracious or saying anything that gracious. Um, let's go. We have a lot of questions. So let's go to a couple of those. Um, uh, Matt, uh, who is in our audience, says, uh, would love some advice on how to talk civilly and rationally to folks I know who are supporting uh, supporters of the con man in chief. I generally try not to engage, especially with coworkers, but sometimes I am pressed to do so. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I've thought a lot about this because I had a very dear uncle, very conservative. I spent 35 years arguing politics with him. And when he died, his kids, God love them, asked me to do the eulogy at the funeral. And I made a point of quoting Richard Nixon in the eulogy just so I could look at the church and say I quoted Nixon because I thought if Uncle Ray heard me, he'd come back to life just to tell me I knew you'd be quoting Nixon someday. So I really love arguing politics with people. I worry that my dear Uncle Ray and I couldn't talk if he were still alive, Mm. that these divisions in our country are so deep. Families have been riven by uh, by this. Um, And I I guess the way we can try to address politics is maybe not talk about people, but talk about problems mm-hmm. and try to say, you know, what problems do we see in common? Uh, what might we do to solve problems? I, I, I wonder sometimes, a friend of mine said today that um, you know, if we try to understand each other on a deep philosophical level, we can't always do it. But if we set out to do some project together that we agree that it needs to get done, uh, maybe that's a way... Uh, to begin to communicate. Uh, So maybe you go cooking with your friend or do something. Oh, no, I think you're right, though, because when you break it down to the issues, other than like the handful of um, uh, issues that are religious based, we're not that far apart from each other in the way in which, uh, you know, we we see things, you know, like we're going to talk to Poe in a little bit from Newtown Action Alliance. And, and um, you know, she always talks about how we aren't so far away apart on gun violence prevention. We are we actually all want the same things. It's just it's been wrapped up in this box that is a narrative from either side. And we've made it so political 
um, that it feels like we can't just agree on things. But in in truth, nobody wants their child to go to school and have to uh, risk being shot by by a, a weapon of, of war. Right. And so when we strip away the politics of it, um, I think we do have more in common. So maybe diverting the conversation instead of it being about Trump and Biden, but being about more of the issue of the issues that are facing the country, maybe there's some common ground ground to be had. And I think it's really important that we continue to have those conversations. We can't afford to just say, you know what, I'm going to avoid this because we we have to start healing and we have to start mending this country. And the way to do that, I believe, is is friend by friend, relationship by relationship, family member by family member. And hopefully those circles eventually overlap and um, we are a more civil um, uh, country for it with respect for one another. Um I want to move on to Carly, and this will be our last question for the panel. Thank you so much to EJ and Jesse. You've been amazing. Uh, What can we collectively do to put pressure on the elected GOP reps to do the right thing and denounce Trump's lies and attempt to harm our our democracy? I mean, you're already seeing uh, some of them backing away, right? Um, uh, I mean, elected ones. Not enough. Not oh oh no absolutely not enough but I think it's going to pick up I think you're going to start to see more of them over the coming days uh, I mean one of the things you are seeing right now and it, it it's 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 still embarrassing and it's still not enough but is is a lot of silence right you do not see mainstream GOP uh, jumping on board with Trump on the fraud train you know um, some of them you know a few of the of of the the, the kind of kooks uh, but they're you know you that's what you expect from them. Um, but I'm hoping that, uh, you know, establishment uh, GOP leaders uh, can at least um, stem the tide a bit and, and kind of and, and play a bit of that role of protecting uh, the institutions that Trump is trying so uh, so so relentlessly to tear down. Um, I don't know what we can do. We, I mean, we've been beseeching these people for years, right? I mean, I'm as mad at them as I am at Trump. Trump is a Trump is a child. Like he's he's never going to be anything but a child. And uh, and we've been we've kind of been terrorized by a by a broken child for the last four years, and we've all been numbed by that. But then we you know we we kind of every now and then we forget that there's this entire party apparatus behind him that has been supporting him either explicitly or through its its silence and its you know acquiescence. And so I'm 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 kind of angriest at them uh, for allowing this to happen. And I feel like if if the things that we've said, if the things that they have seen happen. If the ways in which his behavior has been already has already been allowed to occur um, with no consequences, you know, I'm not sure what we say to them. I mean, this this is what we say to them. This this election is what we say. And of course, I wish, um, you know, House members had done better. And of course, I wish Democrats had taken the Senate so that, you know, all these kinds of important reforms. It's not even reforms that are helping Democrats. It's just reforms to make America more representative and more inclusive. But, you know, Republicans don't want to do that right now. I wish we could. I wish uh, that could happen. And I'm and I'm I'm fearful that it won't. Um, So. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about them. I, I EJ, if you have thoughts, <laughs> yeah, my just two quick thoughts, because I know you got to move on. Uh, thought one is Trump did a lot of work for us tonight. 
that was so outrageous, so over the top, what somebody called a festival of falsehoods. I think there are a lot of Republicans are going to just look at that and say, I can't go with this. I got to say something. But number two, they know he's on his way out of power. And they feared uh, Trump when he had power. They will fear him less because he won't have power. That's not a sign of courage. Uh, And I am as mad as Jesse is at them. But I think as they see his power ebbing away, they will suddenly find out that tell us that they really didn't like this all along. So I think we're already seeing that start now. Well, and I I mean, my hope moving forward is they sort of see how much they lost uh, in the popular vote, how much Trump lost and and feel a little shaken by that. And maybe that will be the impetus to stand up and say, you know, maybe that'll give them the courage to say, you know, what what needs to be said right now. I just wanted to on that. That's an excellent point. And I just wanted to I wanted to slip in one last plug for reforming the way we choose the president, which is I'm not sure that that is going to chasten them. And this is why when you have when you have thrown in your lot with minority rule and when you have figured out that you can basically own many of the structures of our government and many of the institutions of our government with minority support. You, it, it corrodes you and it, and it distorts your ability to run a representative democracy. That's one of the things that's so harmful about the Electoral College is that you can win with minority support. And, you know, as somebody pointed out the other day, Republicans didn't ram through, you know, uh, Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court in spite of their minority status. They did it because of their minority status. You know, it makes you more brazen. So I really think to the extent we can change our system to be one of majority rule, it makes both parties healthier and it makes our democracy healthier. Well, EJ Dion and Jesse Wegman, thank you so much for being here tonight. I appreciate each of you and your insights and your work. And um, you have an open invitation to come back to Sorry Not Sorry anytime and be with us. What a joy to be with both of you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you both. Okay, our next guest is one of my favorite people on the planet and a hero of mine. Her name is Poe Murray. Poe is the chair of the Newtown Action Alliance, a gun violence prevention organization formed in Newtown, Connecticut after the 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Hi, Poe. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Of course. I'm so happy to to be with you and spend some time with you. Um, so I w- first of all, just talk to us for a minute about the state of gun violence in America right now. Sure. So um, we still have 100,000 Americans being killed or injured by guns every single year. And... 40,000 lives are lost, and there are so many families that are devastated by it. And it's from all forms of gun violence. It's homicides, it's suicides, it's um, due to unsecured guns, it's police violence. Um, So, 
you know, we've been working really hard to demand a comprehensive set of strategies to end all forms of gun violence. And while uh, Joe Biden may be elected, and hopefully he is elected tonight or tomorrow, um, he has uh, introduced the strongest gun violence prevention platform in modern history. So we're really pleased with, um, you know, his uh, commitment to end gun violence in America. Uh, we're um, a little disappointed that we don't have the majority in the Senate, because as you mm-hmm. know, Mitch McConnell has um, basically blocked any and all gun laws. And as you stated earlier um, during the opening, we're not that far apart as Americans. Over 90 percent of Americans support background checks and even 70% of Americans support an assault weapons ban, and many of the other measures that are outlined in Joe Biden's platform. So we're ready to pass this amazing set of measures to significantly end gun violence in this country, but we don't have the government um, structure at this moment in time. But that does not preclude the Biden-Harris administration from going forward with creating many of the changes that do not require legislation, which I'm really happy about. And we've come up with, we've worked with other organizations and come up with a a list of executive actions that Joe Biden can take on day one to significantly and dramatically change how government functions and acts to make gun violence a priority to start chipping away at the gun deaths and injuries in this country. And what are those what are those look like? What can he do on day one? Sure. So first of all, he can declare gun violence um, to be a public health emergency, create a create an interagency task force in the government. He can appoint a senior level White House official to coordinate all the federal efforts to address this issue, nominate an ATF director, which has been vacant for a while. Um, uh, Let's see. He could. ban uh, ghost guns, uh, and we can ban uh, importation of assault weapons, uh, modernize the ATF, um, also help to end police violence by prioritizing de-escalations, establishing a national public database on bad actors in the, in the police force, um, and also reversing many of the detrimental executive actions that Donald Trump has taken. For example, um, he has shifted the oversight of gun exports from the State Department to the Commerce Commerce Department um, to make it easier um, to sell more guns, um, you know, around the world. So and also ban the technical data for 3D guns. So there are so many things that Joe Biden can do on day one. Well, that's super exciting. So, you know, we were talking about unity before and 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 how hurtful the politic the politicizing of these issues is for the American people, right? Uh because nothing ever gets done because it's one side uh versus the other instead of finding common ground on these issues. One of these arguments uh, by, you know, that has been really, really effective is this narrative that the Democrats want to take away everybody's guns. Um, And this has been really, really effective 
uh, sort of messaging to the Republicans uh, who are people that really believe in the Second Amendment, um, as I think we all do, um, but uh, think that, you know, the Democrats are gun grabbers. What what do you say to that and um, and how uh, the messaging has been used in such a political way? Well, you know, Joe Biden is a gun owner himself, so he uh, supports the Second Amendment like many of us. And most of us want common sense gun laws, including gun owners. Uh, So they've used this message because they want to sell more guns. It's the gun industry um, and it's the gun lobby. They work hand in hand. In fact, one of the biggest uh, gun lobbyists is, uh, well, is in Newtown, Connecticut, about three miles from the Sandy Hook Elementary School. They're the National Mm -hmm. Shooting Sports Foundation. So quietly, they support the NRA narrative um, that we don't support the Second Amendment and that guns make us safer. But obviously, it doesn't. 100,000 Americans are dying and being injured by guns. And defensive gun use use is actually more rare. So um, during the pandemic, there was a, a big gun surge uh, due to the fact that they, you know, many Americans do believe that guns make us safer, but we have enough evidence and facts to dispute that. And so I think what we need to do is um, work with gun owners and, um, you know, people that have been directly impacted by gun violence. And I have so many friends now that lost their children and their loved mm-hmm. ones and it's heartbreaking to, yes. um, you know, to share their trauma on a daily basis. But I think we need to unite and um, around the idea that we want to end gun violence. You know, even gun owners don't want gun deaths and injuries. And I know that we're more united. And like you said, we're just caught in this political um, messaging, you know, from the, the gun lobby and, and their um, supporters. So I think we have um, a lot of work to do, but we're more united than not. Um, so it looks like we're not going to know who controls the Senate until January. Uh, what do you think uh, would control of the Senate mean for each party when it comes to gun violence prevention efforts? Well, we saw what Mitch McConnell did. When the Republicans uh, controlled the Senate, they basically blocked any and all gun laws. We have 90% of Americans supporting the background check um, bill, and we couldn't pass that because they blocked it. It was just sitting on the shelf. And we have a lot of other laws, right? Like the ERPO, the extreme risk protection laws and banning high-capacity magazines. It was passed out of um, the Judiciary Committee and the House of Representatives, and those are sitting there waiting for a full House vote and uh, waiting for a Senate you know, vote um, with a president that would sign those bills into law. Now, if we had a democratically controlled Senate, we'll be able to pass many of those measures that Joe Biden has outlined in his platform, including an assault weapons ban which we passed in 1994, that was um, uh, that sunset in 2004. So there are so many uh, gun laws ready to go. We've worked for eight years, you know, writing those laws with various legislators. We've, um, you know, lobbied Congress. We have worked with families who have lost their loved ones. 
we are ready to go. We want to save lives. And um, if we can get the control of the Senate and win in, in Georgia in January, it would be incredible. Mm-hmm. And are, are you hopeful that we can make, you know, meaningful progress with a new, a new government? Yes, absolutely. And we must. We have no choice. Um, yeah. I, I often hear after a, a, another tragedy, another mass shooting in another community, one of the first things I hear um, on the news is, is that we didn't think that it could happen to our community, to our family. And I'm screaming, like, ever since my neighbor shot those 20 children and six educators in our community in Sandy Hook, one of the most beautiful, safe communities in the country, we've been screaming out loud, it can happen anywhere. And I believe that there has been a demonstration that it can. It can happen anywhere and everywhere. And it has. And we can't get complacent. There are a lot of other issues that uh, Americans care about. But this has to be a priority issue for all Americans because it impacts us um, everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat, or independent, or unaffiliated. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young. Um, it, it, gun violence impacts all of our lives. Well, Poe, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us tonight and for everything that you do. I love you so much. Thank you. Love you too. Uh, my next guest is also one of my heroes, Laura Packard. Uh, Laura is a stage four cancer survivor and national co-chair of Healthcare Voter. Laura, welcome. Hello. Hi. Um, so my first question is, where where are we right now with healthcare in America? We're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got this this Supreme Court case. Uh, going up to the Supreme Court this week, the end of this week? Uh, next week. Next week? So where where are we right now? Well, we are in a tough spot because the president uh, is championing uh, this court case that goes before the Supreme Court on November 10th, which is next week. And the Supreme Court will rule on the entire Affordable Care Act, which means millions of people will be affected, whether you have health insurance through the Affordable Care Act or through your employer or through Medicare or Medicaid, this is going to affect everybody because the law had provisions that affected everybody. So I think that it was a choice to push this case, this court case off until after the election so that people wouldn't be talking about it. But that does not change that everyone's health is at risk. And with the confirmation of uh, Amy Comey Barrett, I mean, how do you what what are you hearing? What what do you think is going to happen? Because it's not just the people on the ACA that this could uh, potentially hurt or harm. It's also people with pre-existing conditions, right? So we're talking in the hundreds of millions. Mm-hmm. Exactly, uh, because if you have insurance through your employer, uh, 
there are no longer annual and lifetime limits that affect uh, whether your insurance policy still pays for your care. Uh, and that's part of the Affordable Care Act. And your kids staying on your insurance until they turn 26, that's part of the Affordable Care Act too. And that women can't be charged more than men for insurance. That insurance has to cover uh, essential health benefits so that you know that in your insurance isn't a junk policy that it will cover what you need. All of those things are a part of the Affordable Care Act. So what do you expect to change in the next administration? Let's give everyone some some hope. Well, uh, for one thing, having a president that is not trying to dismantle the ACA will be a very good thing because there are regulatory things that the Trump administration is doing right now that don't even involve Congress. Uh, like they just approved a waiver for Georgia in a rather important state. Uh, this waiver uh, lets Georgia um, insist that people have to get their insurance policy through a broker instead of through healthcare.gov. And that means, you know, brokers are incentivized to sell junk policies if they get larger commissions and so on. So not, not all brokers are bad, but forcing everyone to use a broker instead of at least having the website to check their information against, that's dangerous. And Georgia asked for that approval, and Georgia got it from this administration. And things like that, allowing um, states to put into place uh, requirements so that they could throw people off of Medicaid, uh, that kind of thing. All that will change when we have a champion of healthcare in the White House. And if we can turn things around in the Senate, then we have the possibility of passing even more legislation to make healthcare available for everybody. Well, I mean, that was going to be my next question. Uh, will he be able to act on his health care plans if we do not take control of the Senate? That's a tough one because Mitch McConnell has had every opportunity in the last few years to work on legislation that would help people, and he shows no interest. There have been bipartisan uh, bills in the Senate, including Chuck Grassley's bill, to lower the cost of prescription drugs. And... McConnell does nothing. There have been uh, bills passed out of the House that would lower premiums for people, that would give them more tax credits to make healthcare more affordable. And uh, Mitch McConnell is not interested. So Mitch McConnell is a problem. He's not the only problem, but he is stopping a bunch of great legislation from being passed that would help people. Laura, what can people what can people do that are listening right now? I mean, how do we we voted um, and and we came out in record numbers. What else can people do right now? Well, right now, we need to make sure that they count every vote that in several states, they are still counting votes. And we need to make sure that that process continues and that it doesn't get uh, cut short because of Trump demonstrators and lawsuits and so on. If somebody cast a vote, it should be counted. Uh, and second, pay attention to Georgia, because as other people mentioned, there's going to be probably two Senate races in Georgia on January 5th and control of the Senate and kicking out Mitch McConnell from his job as Senate majority leader. That it lies in the balance. So everything you can do to help in Georgia will make a world of difference next year because there's only so much Joe Biden can do that the White House can do without a Senate that's willing to be a partner. 
Well, Laura, thank you for being with us. Thank you for all your work. And I love you. Thank you so much. And I'm always here if you need me. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. It's an honor. Um, so our final guest for this evening is another one of my heroes, all my heroes on on this this episode of the podcast. Uh, Hassan Ahmad. Hassan is an immigration attorney and human rights activist based in Virginia. Hassan, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's always be great to be back with you. Oh, thank you so much. Can you can you tell us, I think the thing that is on all of our minds when we think of this immigration crisis of the last four years uh, is really these these missing children, 545 missing children. How does this happen? The real story, Alyssa, goes back like 40 years or more. Uh, you're talking about an entire system that is set up to not grant and give due process to immigrants and to people seeking asylum at our shores, uh, but take it away from them. And what this administration has done over the last four years are to take policies that have been prepared, honed, and 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 uh, and, and given new life to over the past four years and, and just executed it. And we've seen now the natural results of what they have been planning. It has to be stopped. How does that happen? Well, you know, um, it starts when you start criminalizing asylum seekers. It starts when you start to uh, uh, prosecute people across the board uh, for the, the the misdemeanor of unlawful entry, even though the asylum law, the United States Code guarantees the right uh, for anybody that comes in, whether you come in at a lawful port of entry or not, to apply for asylum. It's a part of international law. It's codified in the United States Code. And when you have families that are fleeing persecution, and I have been to the, the border, I've been to Texas at the detention facilities in Texas, I have been to Tijuana, Mexico, I have been fighting an immigration court and doing removal defense for the past 18 years. And not once has anyone ever told me that they never want to be able to go back home. These people have no choice. They're doing it. What would you do for your own child? What would you do for your own mother? What would you do for your own spouse? You know, you see that there's a possibly a better life and there's a legal way to go and apply for asylum. And this government, this administration has done everything that they possibly can to take that right away from people including the prospect of taking away their family. Why? Because they don't want these people here. And it's as simple as that. Um, I mean, I, 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 I think the question of what would you do for your family is a really, really important one, because I don't think that there is anyone um, who wouldn't, you know, travel someplace else if it meant to give their children a, a better life or or more opportunity, especially knowing the risk that they're taking um, in in coming here, uh, the unfortunate place that we have have. And you said forty years. So, so what what administration would that have been? This would have been back in the uh, uh, the, the Carter administration. But I'm not talking about the uh, the the administrations themselves. I'm talking about the people that have created the policy, that find out where the buttons are and the levers to pull to transform the immigration law, the immigration machine, into a deportation machine. And who are those people? That's the Tanton Network. That's easy. The Federation for American Immigration Reform, 
the Center for Immigration Studies, Numbers USA, the Immigration Reform Law Institute. You know, I was on your call a few weeks ago and we heard from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse uh, and, and his entire, you know, uh, investigation into dark money. There are, this is part of it. This is part of that story, Alyssa. I mean, you have foundations that go back, you know, decades, old money that is constantly being funneled to funnel these and, and, and fund these uh, uh, quote unquote think tanks or propaganda arms that create the policies. And they've been talking about all the stuff that we've been seeing this administration do uh, in the last four years. They've been talking about it for the past 40 years. We're talk- they've been talking about banning people at the airports, green card bans, right. uh, killing deferred action, uh, TPS, uh, public charge, and, and uh, mass ramped up deportations. You know, all the stuff that we've seen over the past four years that has come to fruition. Uh, where do you think they got these ideas from? Trump didn't come up with them. Miller's not an immigration guru. He's not. They're not. They had to come from somewhere. So I, I, I'd urge people to ask themselves this question. Where did the policies come from? Find out where they're coming from. We have to spend the majority of our time putting out fires. Fine. Let's take out the flamethrower. And you just mentioned the public char- charge rule. Um, can you just give us like a really quick explanation of this rule and how uh, Trump, uh, his administration has used it? So what they've done, public charge has been, uh, or the, the prohibition for an immigrant coming in and, and taking public benefits that are t- uh, me- uh, means-tested public benefits, such as food stamps, et cetera, that are meant for, uh, uh, for U.S. residents and citizens, that's been part of the law since like the 1800s, right? What this administration has done is to dramatically, dramatically expand it to the point where they're just looking for a reason, any reason to come up with an excuse that some immigrant might become, not will become, or not might or might not will probably become, just might become a public charge. And that means finding their, uh, you know, credit, take, looking at their credit report if they have one, their tax returns, both domestic and from their home country, their rating, their own English speaking ability, uh, because speaking English is apparently now a, uh, a reason, uh, a plus uh, to have somebody actually come into this country. They're trying to convert the United States into a country where you come here and prove yourself into a country where you have to prove yourself just to come here. It's really, I mean, you mentioned the tax returns. And I mean, uh, you know, I've, as a UNICEF ambassador, I've studied these countries that that people are fleeing from. And a lot of these people don't even have a birth certificate or know their 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 real age. Um, so it's it's crazy to me that we would demand to see tax returns from their country of origin when they don't even know they don't even have a birth certificate. There's that. And, and there's the fact that um, what they've done is they've defined who they don't want to be in this country, figured out those people's characteristics and reverse engineered or created laws Got and it. policies, you know, to keep those people out. That's what's happened. So that's by design. It's by design. It's by design that they're asking for taxes because they know that no one is going to have a record of their taxes. Correct. Um. So what changes when Joe Biden is president? 
God willing, inshallah, right? Inshallah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, I think the most likely scenario, uh, at least right now, and, and hopefully it changes, but I'm going to answer your question, assuming that we have a Biden presidency, but a Republican Senate. Okay, because if the, we have a we if we control the Senate, a whole lot more stuff can get done, and that goes beyond the, the few minutes that I have here. Easy, low hanging fruit: uh, reversing Trump's uh, executive orders. No more Muslim ban. No more green card ban. Restore DACA. Ending MPP, the Migrant uh, Protection Protocol, which I call the Migrant Persecution Protocols. Ending this expanded public charge nonsense. Redesignation of TPS restoring the prioritization prioritization scheme for ICE uh, deportations, allowing IJs, immigration judges to reunionize. Uh, so many different little nitty gritty things. Bottom line is what Trump has shown is that they have been able to sharply curtail or even cut off immigration without passing a single law. Well, if they could stop it without passing a single law, we can turn it back on without passing a single law too. And that's the the biggest takeaway that I think that, that a Biden administration could do. But it goes beyond that, ending family detention, stopping the use of Yederas and, and Pereiras, uh, uh, private, ending private prison and setting up greater house oversight into ICE and CBP and, and the entire detention apparatus. Uh, I don't know if you saw Core Civic and some of these, uh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, their, their stock dropped, you know, <laughs> as, as, the, yeah. as, as the numbers okay. came in. Great. Um, but it has to go further. And I'll say this also in the few minutes that we have left. Not just we can't just hit the undo button. It has to be more than that. It has to be more. We need aggressive action by the attorney general, for example, to certify cases to undo the actions of the Trump uh, of the Trump administration. Many people don't know one of the things that Attorney General Sessions and Attorney General Barr have done is to take pro-immigrant decisions of the Board of Immigration Appeals, appeal it to themselves for the purpose of gutting it so that those cases could not be used anymore by attorneys in defense of immigrants, right? Mm. That has to end. Uh, Taking further steps to ensure uh, procedural justice for immigrants and enhancing the judicial independence of immigration courts. And maybe we can bring back DAPA, uh, what Obama had come up with in 2014, and appointing competent agency heads and stop this ridiculous game of, of uh, musical chairs where you have a right. special deputy acting director of this, you know, uh, serving for, for a year or more. So we have to take steps to prevent the corruption of these institutions, push back against the hate networks and prepare for 2022, a potential redshift and do the legwork to prevent it. We have to and use the power. What what does our immigration policy say about us as Americans? It's horrifying. And it really is. I mean, I I have given more referrals to attorneys in Canada. Let me just say this. I've given more referrals to attorneys in Canada for Canadian immigration attorneys by clients who are just saying, hey, can you help me get to Canada? I said, no, that's not what I do. I help people trying to come here. And they pause and say, get me get me to somebody who can get me out of this, get, get me to a different country. Mm. That's what this is. That's never happened. But I've been practicing for 20 years. That's never happened before. I mean... I have a few friends that were like, if Trump is reelected, I'm going to claim asylum in Canada. I can build so, that case for them. <laughs> so I, uh, I will I will pass them on to you. Um, you know, I get it. It's 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 got to be so terrifying. And I look at people that are in my life. I mean, I have a friend. Her name is Celeste and she's young and she came over here. Uh, her dad put her in a 
bus in the luggage compartment and said, you don't come out of here until this bus stops. And she, as a four-year-old little girl, that's how she traveled across the border. Um, And it's just, we're better than that. Uh, But maybe we're not. Maybe we're not. Maybe we have to be. Uh, But I I am, I feel so much um, uh, better that there are people like you who are fighting for this. Um, and, and I am always by your side, you, you know, I'm, I'm here and I appreciate you so much, Hassan. Thank you. Thank you, Alyssa. We've come this far and built these coalitions. I, you know, we, we've, the, the worst thing in the world that we've, everything that we've built together with all the other advocates and everybody else who's spoken here tonight, the worst thing would be to let it fizzle away and die. So. No, our work has just begun. It's just beginning. It has just begun. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Alyssa. Um, And everybody, thank you so much. That is all the time we have for tonight. I want to thank all of you for being here. I want to take a minute to thank EJ Dion, Jesse Wegman, Poe Murray, Laura Packard, and Hassan Ahmad for being here with us. And uh, for everyone who is listening, we have our work cut out for us, truly. All of our energy, all of our fight, all of our resources for the next two months, we have to put into Georgia. We need to win both of those Senate runoffs to make sure the issues that you heard about today and so many other critical issues that we didn't have time to include tonight are addressed. You know, we can't let Mitch McConnell stand in the way of progress, of human rights, of justice. We can't let him continue to make a mockery of the Senate and just destroy the judiciary. So I hope you love peaches and pecans in Georgia, because there is a lot of work for us to do. And we need every single one of you to work your asses off between now and then to make it happen. So thank you so much for being here live with us tonight. Thank you to all of our listeners who are so uh, loyal and listen to every episode and come back every week. Um, And for those of you who are new to us, please subscribe to Sorry Not Sorry, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And uh, I love you all and I'll see you next time. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 